You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Our, uh, our office is just a few blocks from here, and this is a pretty eclectic neighborhood. And there's a guy who walks around the neighborhood all but nude, and I mean all but nude. And it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, although I can't stop looking like a car wreck or something is happening outside. But everybody else seems to be okay with it. Everybody in the neighborhood seems to be fine, like this is, this is what it means to live in Clarksville, is you have this guy walking around every week. Uh, I like to take walks around the neighborhood as well, with my clothes on, and, but I do like to pray as I walk. And so there are times where I'm walking around and I get to pray and I, and I kind of lose myself in it and I start praying out loud. And uh, this, a couple weeks ago I was walking down our street praying and uh, I didn't notice this guy until it was too late. He was doing yard work in his front yard and he saw me, he heard me, and he was just standing there looking at me like I might need some assistance, I might need help in some way. Because the nude guy, yeah, he's odd, but he seems to be sane. But here's a grown man walking down the street in the middle of the day talking to like an imaginary friend or something. What, what's going on here? And I think sometimes that's what prayer feels like. Either like we're talking to ourselves or some imaginary friend. I have a good buddy uh, in Omaha who was professing Christian in college. He actually was in charge of the campus ministry as a student that he was a part of. And then he had this, uh, this dream one night about a prayer chain. And so he had this dream where somebody had called him, and he was, he was getting it out to everybody, and they were getting it out, and everybody was praying. And in his dream, he began to have this thought like, wait a minute, why are we doing all this? I mean, if God is in control, why are we fretting and doing all this work to make sure everybody in the network gets the request and praise? And when he woke up, uh, he actually thought about it, and he decided to just punt the faith. Meaning it just didn't make sense to him anymore. And even years later as I was talking to him about it, that was still the issue. It was like, yeah, I don't understand prayer. It seems kind of weird. And I think if we're honest, we all have moments where we feel like prayer is a bit odd. Like, are we kidding ourselves with this? Like, are we, is this some sort of like verbal therapeutic processing? Or is there a God who is really listening and really answers our prayers? Who really wants to engage in the everyday stuff that we're talking to him about? Well, those are the questions and the subject of our text today. Uh, We are nearing the end of the book of James, and some of you are happy about that uh, because it has been working us over. Uh, James is a good, good book, but it's tough because James' concern is with the, the nature of genuine faith. In other words, he wants to know what genuine faith looks like, how it works itself out in the everyday stuff of your life. And so he goes after all the areas of hypocrisy in our lives. And I know you felt it. I felt it. James points it out in the beginning. He says, look, don't, uh, don't be too eager to be a teacher because you're going to get stricter judgment. Like it comes right out and, and gets me. And so as he's been dealing with these issues of hypocrisy, you know, he talks about things like, look, we all say that we believe God is good, but when things get tough in our life, we blame him. We start doubting him. We start taking things in our own hands. And so James wants us to figure out what, is, what does real faith look like? And he wants us to confront those areas of disconnect where we know something about God, but we don't have firsthand knowledge of it. You know, like I could, uh, I've not been skiing since I was just a kid. I don't remember it. So I've watched skiing on TV. I've heard people tell skiing stories. I know a lot about skiing, but I have zero firsthand knowledge of what it means to actually ski. And those of you that have skied have a totally different experience with it than I do, even though we might have the same knowledge base. Well, in that way, 
uh, Christians, particularly in our culture, can be very content with just knowing things about God, but lacking firsthand experience of God. And James is pushing us toward that. He wants us to have a spiritual vitality that is rooted in a real experience of the living God. He wants us to know, feel, taste, touch what God's grace is like as it works in us and through us and among us in our community. That's why he says at the end of all his expose of our lives in James 5, verse 8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's what James wants for us, a nearness with God. And so we ask the question, well, how do we do that? And here in our text, James gives an answer, a primary answer that says we do that. We draw near to God. We gain firsthand knowledge of God through prayer. Last week, Todd walked us through the text that talked about uh, suffering and enduring with patience. There are seven references in those verses about enduring with patience. And now in this text, those are matched with seven references to prayer. How do you draw near to God? How do you endure with patience? It's clear. You pray. And James is going to outline three kinds of prayer that help us do this. He's going to talk about personal prayer. He's going to talk about a specific kind of prayer, which is the prayer of the elders in the church. And he's going to talk about praying with others, just praying with one another. And all of these, in unique ways, help us draw near to God and help us experience his nearness with us. So let's talk about personal prayer. Uh, This is times of devoted prayer, where it's structured and formal. It's times of conversational prayer throughout the day, where it's real spontaneous. It includes all of that. And already, some of you are, like, uncomfortable. You're like, wait, I'm not very good at either of those and if that's you, like if, if you haven't prayed in a while or prayer is hard for you, like if just the subject is convicting or confusing, I think James has really good news for you. Because uh, James' aim in this passage is in no way to pile on. It is to encourage. It is to say, listen, it doesn't matter where you're at with this, you can turn to God anytime. John Calvin put it this way in his commentary on this text. He said, there is not a time in which God does not invite us to himself. Look what James says. Verse 13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him pray by singing praise. Essentially what he's saying is, whatever's going on in your life and however you feel about it, God's with you. God's for you. You can just turn to him in prayer. This word suffering is a broad word. It's broader than sickness, which we're going to get to in a minute. Uh, it's, it's, it's what James said in chapter 1, where he says we all encounter trials of various kinds. It's just anything about which you would look at your life and you say, that's bad. Right? That's not good. That's, that's what he's saying. Has anyone got something going on that's not good? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? So there are times in life where it just feels like everything's going great. And even if things are hard, you actually you have a very good spirit about it. This is when we talk about like, people's spirits being high, even in the midst of difficulty. James says, all right, if that's you, then sing a song of praise. And here's what he's getting at. And we saw this in chapter 1 where he talked about the wealthy man and the poor man, how wealth and poverty both present their own kinds of trials. The same is true here. And so for the one who is suffering, there is a certain kind of trial or cluster of trials that come with that. Uh, We can often feel like God is not with us, like he has abandoned us, left us. And so that can give rise to doubt. Anger, bitterness. And what James is saying is, look, if that's you, if you're suffering and you're feeling yourself pull away from God in that way, don't do that. Turn to God and pray. 
On the other hand, if things are good and you're cheerful, uh, it's a different kind of temptation. It's a temptation to feel like you're pretty self-sufficient, like you don't functionally need God. I mean, you believe in him, but you know, you've got this under control. And what James is saying is, no, if that's you, if things are going well, you need to sing a song of praise to God so that your heart remembers that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Whatever is going on good in your life, that's from God. Sing a song of praise. So good times and bad times both test our faith, just in various ways. And what James is saying is, good times and bad times, they, they change, they come and go. But the living God is unchanging and everlasting. So hit your heart to him. Don't hit your heart to your circumstances, because if you hit your heart to him, you can always pray, you can always sing a song of praise, because he's always there. All right, let me just recap here, because this will be important later. God wants us to pray. God invites us to pray. He wants you to, okay? The scriptures exhort us, even command us to pray. Most of you, deep down, really want to. You want to pray more than you do. You want to pray better than you do. You want nearness with God. And technically speaking, it's relatively easy to pray. I mean, I know there's all kinds of heart issues, but like, just in the sense of like, it's just opening my mouth, saying words to God, it's, it's relatively easy to do. So all that is true, and yet our reality is is that we struggle like crazy to pray. This is one of the greatest inconsistencies of the Christian life, is we know that God is here and with us, but we don't talk to him, we don't pray. So why is that? Now I had like all these reasons listed out, and they were really good, really good. And they were funny, and they had lots of illustrations, and I'm not going to give them to you, because um, as I thought about it, I thought, man, if I go through all this, it's going to be easy to miss what I think is the most fundamental reason that we don't pray or that we struggle to pray. And that is, is that it's spiritual. In other words, we have an enemy who comes against us drawing near to God. I am convinced from scriptures and from experience that Satan does not really care what you know about God, does not really care about the activities which you partake in, as long as your actual life is devoid of firsthand experience with God. In fact, he likes, I think, to busy us with all kinds of Christian things that are devoid of real vitality and life with God. And so God wants us to, and the scriptures exhort us to, and we want to, and it's not that hard. And the thing between that and actually praying, I think, really is just the way that Satan uses our fears, our insecurity, and our pride and turns those things to divide us, to keep us from drawing near to God. I'll go one step further. I think he's even okay with us praying as long as we're consumed in our prayers with looking good before others and checking the list of religious duty. As long as we're not actually seeking God in our prayer. The other day I was uh, out of gas, and I know that because my car tells you how many miles you have left until you have no more gas. And I've tested this before. When it says zero, it means it, like, you're done, all right? And so that's happened to me before. I ran out of gas in our neighborhood, and, and it, it drives my youngest son Holden crazy. And I get lectures all the time from him about my driving in general. Well, the other day, uh, I was on zero, and we're at the school parking lot picking up my oldest son, and... We're about to drive over to football practice, and Holden is with me. And I get in the car, I turn the thing on, and he always looks. And he says, Dad, run zero. And it hit me that I was on 20 the day before, and I had driven at least 20 miles 
there and back. So I knew that it was like a legit zero. And I was like, man, yeah, we are. We're going to have to get to the gas station. And he is flipping out. And he is lecturing me. And he's saying, Dad, why do you always wait till the last minute? You know, and because uh, his mom's teaching him, you know. <laughs> and uh, I said, I said, Holden, this is the only way I knew to calm him down. It wasn't that I really wanted to pray. I said, Holden, why don't we just ask God to get us to the gas station? Now, that's not normally a thing I would do. I mean, normally I would look at him and be like, well, we either have enough gas or we don't, right? I mean, no use praying about it. It's just going to be what it is, right? But to calm Holden down, I I say a little prayer. Like, God, would you get us to the gas station, which wasn't that far. And we pray, and I say, okay, Holden, we've asked God, and now we're just going to go. About 30 seconds later, he just goes, but dad, was it according to God's will? <laughs> His mom's teaching him. And uh, I was like, well, that, that is a good question. And I guess we're just going to find out, aren't we? Now, I think kids can teach us a lot about prayer. Um, because one of the reasons we don't pray is because we just feel like we've said the same thing over and over. We feel like there's no use. I mean, either there's enough gas or there's not. But see, but kids, they don't know how to just be realistic, they're always thinking that more is possible than what's actually possible. And we, we sort of belittle them for it. But yet Jesus says, no, 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 you've got something to learn. The kingdom belongs to these kinds of people who see beyond what is tangible and can see what God is doing underneath the surface. See, kids don't know when to stop asking. Do you know how many times I say no to the same thing with my kids, like in a day's time? They will just wear you down until you break and say yes, like the persistent widow. And Jesus says, yeah, this is a good way to pray. Just, just try to wear God down with your asking. They're, they don't know how to be realistic. They don't know when to take no for an answer. And they don't mind needing help. It's just part of their existence. They're really good at praying in that way. There's never a time, I don't think, where a kid feels much resistance just to turn to God. It seems really natural. And so I think the question for us is, uh, will you have enough humility to turn to God in prayer today, even if you haven't in a long, long time, even if you don't know what to say, even if you think it's kind of ridiculous, will you trust that God will be there and draw near to you? That's what James wants you to do. Right now, he um, moves us from this general call to pray at all times to a very specific kind of situation. Uh, Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So here James is dealing with what I will call the prayer of the elders. And as you can see, this is where the the difficulty of the text comes to the surface. Uh, This text is not only one of the most difficult texts in James, Uh, but probably the entire New Testament. We won't have time to get into all the details. I'll try to alert you to a couple things, and you can ask questions later. But here's a couple of important questions, I think, related to these verses. The first one, which we should all be asking if you're paying attention, which is this. What is the relationship between faith and healing? It seems to me here that there's someone who's sick, and there's people who are praying for them, and he's saying the prayer offered in faith will raise him up, will save him. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So what is the relationship between faith and healing? Uh, There are two, I I say, ends of the spectrum in Christianity today. Uh, On one end, I think you would have people who would say, 
God has promised to heal us, and if we will just ask with enough faith, he will do it every time. And so they will pray and even command God to heal people, and when he doesn't, they will conclude that someone, either the one praying or the one being prayed for, just hasn't had enough faith. And not only do I think that is a bad interpretation of this text, I think it is destructive in the lives of people. It's terrible. It's not just not true, it's really, really bad. All right? On the other end of the spectrum, I think there are some who would conclude, yes, this kind of, of prayer and healing existed in the time of the apostles and Jesus' ministry, and it was to substantiate the message of the gospel that was being proclaimed, but, but it's not really applicable past that. And there are lots of really respected people. I quoted Calvin earlier. I think that's the view Calvin holds on this text. Right? I don't land there for a couple of reasons, and, and here they are. Uh, one, it seems to put God in a box in a very unnecessary way. It seems to, to say, both of them are really talking about the quality of, what, of the faith that heals, and I think the emphasis is on the God who heals. And so I don't, I don't want to put God in that box if I don't have to. That's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, secondly, James here says, he doesn't say call on the apostles. I mean, Paul's around. The apostles are around. At least James is around, right? But he says, call on the elders of the church. And so I take him to mean that God is giving the elders some spiritual authority here and to play this role in praying for the, those who are sick. Right? So I would land uh, between these two a little bit. I would say that the healing that James is describing here is not tied up solely in the faith of the people praying or the one who's being prayed for. I would say that it's the healing power of God. And so this isn't about mustering up enough faith. It's about trusting the faithfulness and the power of God. God, um, when he's promised something, we can pray with, pray with absolute certainty. You find a promise in scripture, bank on it. Just, just say, God, you said. Nothing gets my attention with my kids until they say, Dad, but you promised. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm, I'm there because I don't want to break my word. Now, the hard part about this is that God does not anywhere promise to heal all who are sick and all who ask to be healed. But I will say that there are times when God gives people, I think, insight into what his will is. I don't think it's like super common. I think it's rare, but I know it happens. I've seen it happen. I've heard firsthand stories of it happening. I read a story this week of a pastor named Dan Doriani who, when he was a college pastor, was studying this text. And uh, he got kind of excited about it, about the possibilities of what God could do. And so uh, he had a friend who was sick who had kind of this heart disease. And so he said, you know what you can do is you can get the elders to pray for you. And so he went in with all his naivete and had the elders. And the, the lead elder was kind of like, all right, we're going to do this. And of course, they studied it for six months to see how to do it. And then they did it. And, and he said, everybody's pretty skeptical. He said, but while I was praying, I've never felt anything like it. Literally felt heat coming up through my body and just had this deep conviction from God that he was healing my friend. And I, I wanted to stop saying, God, will you heal him? And I wanted to start saying, God, thank you for healing him. But I, but I was young, so I, didn't, I wasn't so boastful. I just kept with it. A couple days later, he was with his friend, and his friend said, Dan, check this out. And he runs up a flight of stairs. And Dan follows him up, and he says, see, I'm not even breathing heavy. And Dan said, man, I knew it. The other day when we were praying, I felt confident that God had given me insight that he was going to heal you. And his friend said, so did I. I knew it right then. Just didn't want to say anything until I tested it out. And Dan will be the first to say that uh, even though that happened the first time he tried it, it hasn't really happened that much after. He'll be the first to say that in that same season, he had a little girl who had rashes all over her body and could never wear, have her skin exposed. I mean, she just lived a life of, of, of misery, really. And uh, so the elders had come over to his house to pray, and he doubted. You know, when it's your own and you've lived through it, it's hard to believe God can change it. 
So they prayed, and he went to his study, and just like nothing. A couple hours later, he heard his wife, or he heard someone crying upstairs, and so he went to see what it was, and it was his wife. And she was crying tears of joy, and she said, Dan, she's playing in the bathtub. She's never played in the bathtub before. She never had the, like, not the pain to do that. And Dan was convicted of his own lack of belief. And I share those stories only to say that it just illustrates that the healing is not necessarily tied up in the faith of the person healing, but in the will of God and the insight he gives some people into what that will is. It's rare, but it's, it happens. What about uh, doctors and medicine? We've got some docs in here, and I'm ruining your business, and so let me address this. Um, all healing is from God. So to say that a doctor and his skills and the medicines we have aren't from God is to say that every good and perfect gift isn't from above. And so no Christian should uh, go to a doctor and not also look to God at the same moment. I think if you have sickness, you should, you should do whatever you can. You should pray and you should go to the doctor. And I also think there are times when calling upon the elders to pray is something that you should do. And we'd be glad to do it. All right, speaking of, what is the prayer of the elders? Uh, let me just do this briefly. Uh, elder is a term that is, that is synonymous with terms like pastor, shepherd, and overseer in the New Testament. And they have two basic tasks, which are to care and correct. So that is to care for the needs of the flock and to correct the ones that are wandering away and bring them back in, okay? And they do this primarily through the ministry of the word and through prayer. I only say that to say I want you to see that James not only assumes community in this, I mean, you can see it. He says, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you cheerful? And then he says, you know, uh, confess your sins to one another. And there's one another, there's two or three one another's in here. So there's the assumption of community. But here we get some insight into the structure of community. That is, the Lord has given the church elders and deacons, and there are members, there's word and sacrament, and all of these things that are structural, organizational in nature, are designed by God to serve and to nourish the body. James just assumes that context. And so what he's saying is, look, if you're sick, and often when you're sick and you've prayed uh, and nothing happens, you just feel totally alone. And what James is saying is you're not alone, and you, and you are not without recourse. Call upon the elders of the church. God has given them to you in his mercy and his love to care for you and to pray for you. Uh, this is a very countercultural idea. Uh, we live in a fiercely independent age, a very scientifically progressed, anti-establishment kind of culture. And so all that means is that we are convinced deep in our soul that the good stuff is in the new stuff. It's in what's being innovated. And so we don't like the idea of anyone having authority over us. Uh, we resist that. We resist the idea of needing people. We resist the idea of things that aren't you know, scientific purely in nature. So just the idea that God can heal someone supernaturally is, is difficult for some of you. But then on top of that, to read here that perhaps the normative way in which God will do that would be through an organized spiritual entity called the church and by means of spiritually ordained authority, the elders. I mean, that just sounds like old-fashioned at best. At worst, it sounds kind of like a cult. And we haven't even got into like what's up with the anointing with oil stuff. That's, that's really weird, all right? So I, 
there is that tension for you. And so whenever you come to something in the Bible that confronts your cultural sensibilities, because the truth about this is that some cultures wouldn't have a hard, hard time with this at all. We have a hard time because of our particular culture. And so when you come to something like that, you have to ask yourself the question, am I willing to trust that God can work in ways that might seem outdated to me or even unreasonable? Really, the question in plain language is, am I willing to get over myself and just and, and trust that this is how God works? That's what James is saying. He's saying, here is a pathway that God has provided for us to draw near to him. And here's a means by which he will draw near to those who would just come. It's not new. It's not really complicated. It's, it's quite simple. But it requires humility and faith. And so are you willing to trust God in that way? Practically what that would mean for you, I think, is increasing levels of commitment to the church. So that is commitment to a community, to a gospel community, would be how we live that out. Uh, movement toward being a member in our church that is committing to live life with these people. As long as you are isolated and autonomous, you are in great danger. Because you lack a sense of assurance or confidence that God is drawing near to you through means of his church. All right, James also says we should pray with each other. And here he points us to probably the best resource we have, which is the body of Christ. Um, When Paul talks about the body as Jesus is the head and everybody has members and parts of that body, he says when one part is suffering, the whole body is sick. And what he's saying is is the idea of drawing near to God and being whole and being healthy is not purely an individual reality, it's a corporate one. We draw near to God together and he makes his presence known in unique ways among us in community. Verse 16 James says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, the obvious question is, what what is the relationship between sin and sickness? And in Jesus' day, they they over-spiritualized this. In other words, if somebody was was sick, it was always because they had sin. I think in our day, uh, we under-spiritualize it. We do not want to connect these two things because that gets really weird to work out. And I just think that, that the witness of Scripture is that Uh, There is some connection. It's not always a connection, but there can be. David says in Psalm 32, "When when I cherish my iniquity in my heart, when I hid it, when I didn't come clean, my body wasted away. Your hand was upon me, O God, and my groaning all day, he was not well. It was because he wouldn't come clean with his sin. Uh, Paul, when he's talking about communion in 1 Corinthians, says, look, the issue in the church is some of you are are hoarding and sort of only thinking about yourselves, and you're not thinking about the needs of others around you in this meal. And he said, that's why some of you are ill. In other words, Paul is saying God is bringing you down in sickness, not because he's punishing you, but as a mercy to give you a sense of what you're doing so that you might repent. So sometimes God brings sickness into our life to make us aware of stuff that we need to repent of. It's not punishment, it's mercy. Sometimes sickness just affords us an opportunity to be reflective, to examine our lives. You know, when you're down and you've watched the same Born Supremacy series three times, you know, it's like, well, what am I going to do? Let's think about my life, all right? I think also what's going on here is James is connecting uh, confession of sin with healing in the holistic sense, meaning uh, 
I don't think healing is just physical. I think it's very spiritual and communal, corporate in nature. So I think he's talking about not just general confession, although that's fine, but specifically confessing sin to those whom you have sinned against. Have you ever been in conflict with somebody? You ever had unresolved conflict where you've sinned against them or they've sinned against you and it's not being dealt with and it just eats at you? Like you think about it, you get headaches, you can't sleep, you wake up in the middle of the night. There is no doubt that conflict affects your body very physically. And what James is saying is, listen, if that's what's going on, if that's what's causing you to feel bad, confess and pray with one another. You know how hard it is to pray with someone who you haven't forgiven or who hasn't forgiven you? So there's an assumption here of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. He says that will bring health to you and to the whole body. Um, James is deeply concerned with fellowship, just as his brother Jesus was. Jesus said, don't, don't be coming to worship and giving your gifts if you know there's something going on. You're going to get sick. Go make it right. Paul Tripp says, James is pointing us to an intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, redemptive community. And then he asks this question, is there a humility of approachability in your life? In other words, is it possible that you're living right in the middle of one of God's greatest resources for healing and not even know it? Because you're isolated. One of the most powerful ways that we experience the presence and the power of God is just to pray with one another, to pray with others. I, a number of years ago, and I think I've shared this story before, but it's good. Um, I was in New York City, and I was participating in various ministries, and one of them was a prayer ministry, and it consisted of essentially our group holding these signs in Union Square subway station that said, Free Prayer. Now, I had prayed before. I'd been to prayer meetings before. I've had prayer lists index cards, charts, the whole thing. Nothing prepared me for what this would be, feel like. I have never felt so alone, so ashamed, so unsure of my faith as I did standing in that subway station holding a sign that said free prayer. Like in the prayer meetings that I had been to, they were very like, you know, it was cool to pray. And if you prayed really well, it was like you looked good. I assure you, prayer in the subway station has nothing to do with looking good. Nothing at all. We look like fools from Texas who thought that people were going to stop and talk to us. And they didn't, not for a long time. And I stood there, and person after person sort of made eye contact and looked away. And there's lots of crazy, nutty things happening in the subway station, by the way. But this, for some reason, was like, scatter, scatter. Eventually, one guy walked past me. And for some reason, I followed him with my eyes. And about 20 feet or so, he turned around and he came back. And he said, "Uh, what do I do? Like, I don't know, you're the, you're the first one. Um, <laughs> I think you just asked me to pray for something and I pray, and then we both go on with our lives. And he's like, all right. And so he asked for me to pray for something, and, and that happened a few more times, and all the requests were very familiar, you know, just finances, conflict, trials, that sort of thing. I didn't know exactly what to pray for people because the, the humanity of it, the pain of it was very real, and somehow my normal prayers weren't, weren't feeling right. And so in the back of my mind while I was praying, I'd be asking God, God, teach me to pray, like for real. I don't know what to pray for. Would you, ask, would you just tell me what to pray? And I would try to let those words come out of my mouth, and it all seemed pretty normal to me. But people would hug me and, and tear up a little bit, and 
One, one lady went and got her friend and drug her back over and said, here, you got to get this guy to pray for you. I was like, well, this is kind of cool. This is working out okay. There's one lady that stopped, uh, very professional, and she walked up. She said, um, I don't normally do this kind of thing, but would you pray for my sister? And I was like, yep. And so I just started praying for her sister. And uh, again, in my mind, I'm thinking, God, I don't know anything about her or her sister. And I, it just seems weird to pray. Would you just tell me what to pray? Would you help me understand how to pray for this woman? And I got this sense where God was saying, uh, pray for, for the communication in their relationship, that it would be restored. And I didn't want to say that because it, it sounded really presumptuous. Um, and what if I was wrong? Like that, you know, what would she think of God and, then, and, and me? And, but yet the words just came out. They forced themselves out. And right when I prayed it, she just broke down and cried. Now, here's the thing. I could have, in that moment, counseled her. Like, I have skill in that. I have training. I could have said, hey, well, what's going on with your sister? And I could have worked through a whole thing and maybe given her some good advice on how to, how to work on that. But that is not what that woman needed that day in the subway station. That day in the subway station where there are people, the sea of humanity all around, what she needed to know more than anything was not what I thought she should do, but is God here? Does he, does he hear me, know me, understand my situation? And just hearing that bit of insight into her life come from a total stranger who doesn't even know what he's talking about gave her a deep assurance that God was present. And I want you to see that sometimes to draw near to God, we just need other people and we need the prayers of others to sense God's drawing near to us. Something else happened that day in the subway station which I haven't shared with you. Um, this one guy walked up, and I was praying for him, and uh, it was very uneventful. And after we were done, he said, thank you very much. I'll be praying for uh, you and the pastoring of your church. I can't remember how he worded it. And I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't. I'm just a campus ministry guy. I'm just here with some students. And he goes, no, you'll pastor a church. I was like, no, I have no desire to do that. Um, it's not in the plans at all right now. I get free ice cream at the SAE house. I like it. It's a good setup. And uh, he was like, no, you, you will pastor a church. And this was 2001 or 10, I mean, it was a long time ago, before I ever even thought about any, working in a church, much less pastoring one. And I argued with him. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not going to do that. That's not in the plan. And he just very calmly was like, no, you will, and I will pray for you. <laughs> I was like, all right, dude, God bless you, see you. I kind of forgot about that. Um, I had did several more years of campus ministry. I went up to Omaha to help a friend plant a church. And even that was just kind of like, yeah, I should try this out and help him out. And in the, in the season where we felt like God might be calling us to plant a church, uh, the thing that I wrestled with the most was, was not really like, can we do this? Is it possible? But really, is God calling us to do it? I, I just didn't know how to know if he, if he was calling us. And one of the things that kept coming back to my mind, there were several things that were influential in that, but just that guy, I couldn't shake him couldn't get him out of my mind. I could see his face. Just, I will pray for you. <laughs> and it was just weird how God used that years later to give me a sense of assurance that, that it wasn't about my desire or my ability, but it was just about his calling that, that I was going to do this. We need each other. And that's what James is saying. Look, get over yourself. Get over your pride and your fear. Confess your sins. Be reconciled. Pray for one another. If you can't do that, you won't experience the good news of the gospel which comes to those who are humble. James um, ends this way. He says, The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. And then he 
references Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth, man, not just like in his city, on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is supposed to be encouraging. This is your, like, be like Elijah. That does not help me very much. I cannot, I don't think I can make it stop raining or rain. I never, I've never had that experience before. Well, James is actually trying to encourage us because notice what he says. He doesn't draw attention to Elijah's great power. He, he draws attention to Elijah's nature. He is a man with a nature like ours. So one chapter after Elijah stop, makes it rain, you find a different story of Elijah. He's sitting under a tree and he's depressed. He's tired, he's experienced failure, and he is asking God to take his life from him. Severely depressed. Here's a man with a nature like ours. Sometimes he experiences God and he seems awesome and sometimes he wants life to end. What Elijah does in that moment, though, is he talks to God. He has learned that in the good and the bad, God is there and he's for you and you can turn to him. And when we see Elijah, we should immediately think of another man with a nature like ours. Uh, We were reading Hebrews as a staff team in the last few weeks. And it made me think of this verse that we read. Since then we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, because he had a nature like ours. He was man. Yet, he was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet without sin. And this is what makes him different than Elijah and every other man. It's what makes it possible for him to stand in our place as the righteous one, to bear the punishment of our sin, of our hypocrisy, and to credit to us the perfect righteousness that he lived in our place so that we could be sons and daughters of God. Because of that, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Who's the righteous one? It's the one who's in Christ. It's the one who has the spirit who intercedes for us when we don't even know what words to say. And by that same spirit, it is those who have been adopted to the family of God as sons and daughters who come to God as dad, who don't know how to be realistic and don't know how to take no for an answer and don't mind needing help, who don't mind asking God for whatever is on their heart and mind, and they will just trust that God's will is good and that he will work for our good. And those who in relationship with God at times get some very specific insight into the will of their father. And so they ask him with utter confidence that he would do that thing. For some of you, that just sounds too good to be true. I just think James would say, no, it's just the opposite. It's so good that it must be true. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.